Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the life and work of Florida sculptor Charles Adrian Pillars. This bronze statue has been an iconic image of Jacksonville ever since it was first unveiled in 1924. We'll discuss editors of the Florida Historical Quarterly, past and present. We've had six full-time editors. Of those six, two of them have more than 60 years as editor. And we'll talk about Gullah Geechee culture. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Life, the Untold Story of Charles Adrian Pillars is the new book by Jacksonville historian and author Wayne W. Wood. Life is also the name of Pillars' 20-foot-tall bronze statue that was unveiled in 1924 in Jacksonville to commemorate Florida soldiers who had died in World War I. I got started on this project um, basically by seeing this beautiful statue out in Jacksonville's Memorial Park for virtually all my life since I was five years old. When I first saw it, I was a little bit scared by it. It's this giant winged creature standing on a globe holding a, a branch of some sort in his hand. And as a little boy, it frightened me. I thought it was a giant of some sort. But as I've grown older and grown to love it, I realized this is without a doubt one of the most beautiful public works of art in the state of Florida. It is a bronze sculpture, 20 feet tall, silhouetted against the St. John's River in a beautiful Olmstead Park, Memorial Park in Riverside section of Jacksonville. And this bronze statue has been an iconic image of Jacksonville ever since it was first unveiled in 1924. While residents of and visitors to Jacksonville are familiar with the work of Charles Adrian Pillars, until Wayne Wood's extensive biography, little was known about the sculptor himself. Wood was inspired by a master's thesis on the life sculpture written by Diane Daywood Taylor. Wood did extensive research that included interviewing Pillars' two daughters who are in their 90s. Pillars uh, was born and grew up in the Midwest in a small town in Illinois. And at an early age, he was shown to exhibit remarkable artistic talent. And uh, when he was about 15 years old, he went to Chicago to apprentice with a noted sculptor there, Laredo Taft. And at about this time, coincidentally, the Great World's Fair of Chicago was underway. They were building the fair and it started in 1893. 
just when he was uh, engaged in his apprenticeship with Laredo Taft. And the World's Fair was a signal event in American history. Uh, one commentator said it was the second most important event at that time in the United States history after the Civil War. Because in this World's Fair, artists, sculptors, merchants came from all over the world to be part of this great American World's Fair, which was in some ways a rival to the World's Fair in 1888 in Paris, at which the Eiffel Tower was the uh, great landmark. So Chicago had a chip on its shoulder. It was the second city to New York, and it wanted to show itself as one of the great cities of the world. So this World's Fair was destined to be a cultural landmark uh, on the American scene. And so they built all these beautiful white palaces around a giant lagoon, and all these white palaces required sculpture, and that's why the, the greatest sculptors in all the world came to Chicago. And so Pillars was there in the midst of this renaissance and the um, era of sculptural art, and he met all the great sculptors of the time. Daniel Chester French was his, one of his mentors. French later went on to design the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C and August St. Gaudens, and so many of the ones who we now know today as the great uh, sculptors in the pantheon of American artists. So they were all there. Pillars, being a young student apprentice, uh, helped out many of those sculptors, and he got assigned to work with Daniel Chester French to build the giant colossus that was out in the lagoon. If you've ever seen a picture of the 1893 World's Fair, you've surely seen this golden lady of the same scale as the Statue of Liberty out in the middle of the lagoon. Well, young Charles Pillars got to sculpt the head. It was the largest head ever sculpted in the United States at the time. And so uh, with that under his belt and many of the other sculptors that he helped to design for the fair, uh, he felt like he was destined to be one of the great sculptors in America himself. That winter happened to be the coldest winter in the history of Chicago. It was down below zeros for a day in a row. Uh, it was a great impediment for building the World's Fair. They somehow pulled it off. But after the fair was over, Pillars wanted to go someplace warm. And so he he had an uncle in Jacksonville, and he said, you know, Florida is a place that's warm. Jacksonville is the largest city in Florida. I think I'll go there and become the greatest sculptor in Florida, with you know, him being one of the few artists in this uh, newly uh, growing state. Pillars moved to Florida to escape the cold weather of Chicago, but arrived in Florida just in time for the famous Big Freeze of 1894-95. Pillar's uncle was president of Jacksonville's city council, but government leaders at the time didn't show much interest in commissioning art. After World War I, Pillars was commissioned to create the huge life sculpture. Wayne Wood. The Rotary Club thought it was important to do a memorial of some sort to those soldiers and service people who died uh, in the World War I, the Great War as they called it. And so a number of people suggested ideas, and uh, after a lot of confusion and ineptness, the committee that was commissioning the sculpture and designing the park 
uh, was met with a woman named Nina Kummer, who later went on to become the grand dame of Jacksonville's art and founder of the Kummer Museum of Art and Gardens. But she uh, challenged Pillars to design the greatest work of art he had ever done. And uh, he was part of this commission of people who helped design the park. The park was um, designed by the Olmsted brothers, the most famous landscape architecture firm in the country, the two sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, the father of American landscape architecture. And uh, Ms. Kummer was the one who got them involved. And there was this uh, clash of artistic egos between the Olmsted brothers and Pillars and Ms. Kummer trying to make this the most beautiful park they could. And it eventually came out well, but not without lots of trials and tribulations, which are uh, covered in this book. At the base of the life sculpture, a box was buried that contained a list of the 1,200 Florida soldiers known to have died in World War I. When Hurricane Irma struck in 2017, Jacksonville Memorial Park was flooded and the list of names was waterlogged. Fortunately, archaeologists were able to uncover and save the document. When Hurricane Irma came a couple of years ago, it not only destroyed some of the plants, but it also destroyed some of the beautiful concrete balustrade that goes over 200 feet across the front of the park, fronting on the river. And uh, fortunately, the great statue, which the name of the statue is Life. And fortunately, Life statue was not hurt, but there are wonderful and amazing photographs and videos of rolling waves coming off of the river, far towering over the balustrade and crashing onto the statue. And fortunately, uh, the salt water did not do any lasting damage to the great bronze statue itself. Video of the preservation of the World War I scroll can be seen in the Florida Frontiers television episode, World War I in Florida, which is archived online at myfloridahistory.org. When Charles Adrian Pillars first came to Florida, he mainly created portrait busts and medallions for prominent people. Eventually, Pillars received a commission to create a statue that still stands in the United States Capitol building. Author Wayne Wood. Finally, in 1912, he landed one of the most significant commissions of his career, and that was to place a statue of a Florida hero in the statuary hall in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Every state was allowed to have two of their heroes commemorated uh, in statuary in this great hall of American heroes. And so the first one that Florida chose was Dr. John Gorey, the inventor of the ice-making machine, uh, which uh, later on went on to the development of air conditioning without which Florida would not exist as we know it today. So he was a great hero at the time and there was a very intense competition to get the commission to do this first sculpture and Pillars won it and he did a a seven or eight foot tall marble statue, Carrera marble, uh, that is still in the capital of Washington DC today. After that it came time to choose the second hero from Florida, and the legislature chose General Kirby Smith, the famous Confederate War hero, and um, Pillars again vied for that. The competition was intense, and he eventually won that. So now he had the commission for two great sculptures to go in the Capitol. 
However, uh, even after he finished the General Kirby Smith statue, got installed in the Capitol, but they never dedicated it because there was controversy from Northern legislators that they should not be commemorating Confederate heroes. And so it remained in the Capitol undedicated for almost five years. And finally, in 1922, without any ceremony in particular, it was officially declared a statue in Statuary Hall. So those were Pillar's two big works that he did. And that led in turn in 1924 to the Statue of Life being unveiled in Memorial Park. In the book Life, the untold story of Charles Adrian Pillars, historian Wayne Wood tells many interesting stories about the people Pillars encountered and worked with, from circus performers who took classes from him at the Ringling School of Art in Sarasota to competitors vying for the same commissions. There is sex and violence, attempted murder, insurance fraud. There are just amazing uh, little anecdotes on the side that make this a very colorful story, but it all comes back to Pillars uh, and his life, which is a double play on the word life, his sculpture. He lived through the great historical events from that very important period from the mid-1890s to the middle of the Depression. He finally passed away in 1937. Interestingly enough, the last sculpture he did was placed on a base that was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. So, you know, here we go from a man whose story is unknown to all of a sudden a man whose story is so vibrant that lets a storyteller like me and a historian get to tell uh, so many of the other stories that he was involved with. He was involved in the great fire of 1901 in Jacksonville, the third largest city fire in the United States. He had to flee for his life and jumped in the river as his studio burned down in the middle of this great fire. And he also was in the Great Depression and uh, all the hardships and, and difficulties he had there. He was in the 1920s during Florida's boom years and got to celebrate that. When he lived in St. Augustine for 10 years in the 1920s, he built one of uh, St. Augustine's most well-known landmarks, now known as the Pink Castle, uh, as his own home and studio. It's still there today. So uh, the, the parts of our history and the different parts of Florida that he touched are still very much uh, with us today. And yet all these layers of history that he was involved in have been uncovered until now. Wayne W. Wood is author of the book, Life, The Untold Story of Charles Adrian Pillars, published by the Jacksonville Historical Society. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Each week at this point in the program, I encourage you to check out our website at myfloridahistory.org. You'll want to mark your calendar to make sure you visit our website May 20th through 22nd for the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum. The keynote speaker will be Gilbert King, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the books Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America, and Beneath a Ruthless Sun, A True Story of Violence, Race, and Justice Lost and Found. Gilbert King has also written about race and criminal justice for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic. 
Don't miss the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum, May 20th through 22nd, accessible online at myfloridahistory.org. Way to make a work of art. Every moment makes a contribution. Every little detail plays a part. Having just the vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. Putting it together, that's what counts. Joining us now is Dr. Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of Riches of Central Florida, and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, as I just said, you're editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. What does an editor do? An editor, especially of a state journal, wears many, many hats. If you're editor of a national or international journal, you have a large staff to do many of the chores. But if you're editor of a state journal, it's pretty much you. And uh, so I do a variety of things. I go to conferences to hear papers. And depending on what I think about the paper presented, I invite scholars to submit their manuscript for consideration for the quarterly. Also, every manuscript that comes in, I uh, read all of the manuscripts. Some of them, I think, have potential but are not quite ready to go out to referees yet. I know they won't get a good reading if they do. And so I work with the scholar uh, to try to make changes that need to be made before I submit it to uh, referees. I select the referees based on what the article covers and I contact those referees. I arrange for them to read the manuscript. By the way, all referees do not know who the author is, so it's a double-blind process. The scholar does not know who read their work, and the referees do not know who the scholar is. Only I know who both parties are. Uh, This helps with the process because you may be reading something of someone you know, Uh, You may be reading someone's work with whom you have problems, and you don't want that to interfere with the reading. Uh, So it's a double-blind process. I choose them. Once the manuscripts come back, the, the reviews come back, I make the decision. If the decision is to go ahead with the manuscript and to move toward publication, then I contact the author. I tell them what revisions need to be made based on the referee reports. When those are done, then it's my responsibility to copy edit the manuscript. If there are images that go with this, then we have to seek permission to publish those images. Once everything is put together for a particular issue, then I submit it to the person who puts it in the format that it needs in order to be published. It goes to the publisher, and then it's all over (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. I'm on to the next issue. Well, what qualifies a person to become the editor of an academic journal like this? All the editors of the Florida Historical Quarterly since about 1960 uh, have all been faculty members at universities, at uh, UF, at uh, USF, or at UCF. Um, So first of all, you're a faculty member. When the job is posted, sometimes in, in some state journals, they ask for someone with knowledge of the specific state. In my case, I was the person who would have this job would be knowledgeable in Southern history so that it's framed in a larger context. So they're all faculty members. They have faculty obligations like everyone else. I had 
some editing experience before I came. I was the associate editor of the Tennessee Encyclopedia Project. I had public editing experience in primary documents. I worked on the James K. Polk papers while I was in graduate school. And I had been a book review editor for another journal. So I had editing experience coming into it. Well, in 2021, the Florida Historical Quarterly will begin publishing its 100th volume. How many editors has the quarterly had in its 99 volumes? Well, like many state journals, very few, actually. Uh, We've had six editors, six full-time editors. We have had some interim editors when there was a period of time between editors. But we've had six full-time editors. Of those six, two of them have more than 60 years as editor. Um, The first editor, Julian Young, and Sam Proctor both had more than 30 years of of editing. I'm in my 16th year as editor. Wow. Well, you obviously do a whole lot with the journal. As you said, you wear many hats. Uh, What editorial staff, though, assists in the production of the Florida Historical Quarterly? We've had some changes. In 2011, we had an assistant editor, Dan Murphy. Uh, who is also a faculty member at UCF. He was assistant editor until 2017 when he moved on to other avenues and things that he wanted to do. Uh, We have interns most semesters, but not all semesters. In 2018, the dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at UCF created a faculty position for someone who would be, in many ways, a managing editor, Uh, for the 11 journals that are in the College of Arts and Humanities. So he works with us as well. Great. Well, thanks, Connie. Thank you. Dr. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of Riches of Central Florida, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Ounce by ounce, putting it together. Small amounts, adding up to make a work of art. First of all, you need a good foundation, otherwise it's risky from the start. Takes a little cocktail conversation, but without the proper preparation. Having just the vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. The art of making art is putting it together. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. She has this look at Gullah Geechee culture in Florida. The Gullah Geechee people have resided in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida for hundreds of years. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He's also a Floridian and a Gullah Geechee descendant. He recently talked to me about the Gullah Geechee in Florida. For those who may not know, Gullah Geechee is basically those who have descended from enslaved Central and West Africans uh, who worked plantations throughout the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor or the southeastern U.S. This corridor stretches from the north, Wilmington, North Carolina, to the south, St. John's County, Florida, and about 30 miles inland. So Florida's story is largely unknown or forgotten by many uh, Floridians today. People kind of assume that this culture only applies to coastal Georgia and coastal South Carolina because they've been more effective at promoting their cultural heritage and tourism. But in reality, the plantations extended all throughout this four-state coastal uh, region. 
Florida's Gullah Geechee history goes way back to a time before statehood. As Ennis Davis explains, the Gullah Geechee arrived in Spanish Florida long before the United States took control of the territory in 1821. Some people may hear when you think of slavery, some people may think 1619 Jamestown is when the first enslaved entered the country. That's technically inaccurate. Spain was already occupying Florida by that point in time and it already had enslaved here uh, for nearly a century. So Florida story emerged as a place where those enslaved who escaped from Georgia and South Carolina would also go south into Spanish Florida because they were also provided their freedom there. The Gullah who did escape, who came into Florida, they had a choice, essentially. You could um, go to a community like Fort Mose, which was north of St. Augustine, and you could pledge your allegiance to the Spanish. Uh, you would have to join the Spanish military. You'd also have to um, defend St. Augustine from attack, and you'd have to become a Catholic as your religion. Well, if you were enslaved and you would escape the British man's plantations and you got down into Spanish Florida, you probably didn't trust the Spanish no more than you trusted the British. So from that aspect, many went south further into Florida and mixed with Native Americans. So that's where you get the Seminole tribe, the Black Seminole tribe. In the 18th and 19th centuries, enslaved people from rice-growing regions of Africa cultivated rice on plantations in Northeast Florida. Rice continues to be a key ingredient in Gullah Geechee dishes, along with seafood, okra, peanuts, peas, and greens. Ennis Davis. Shrimp and grits is really big here. Low country boils are really big here. Those are dishes that would have been grown, produced on plantations. Um, take shrimp and grits, for example. The grits would have been a ration that would have been provided by the plantation to the enslaved but the enslaved would have tried to substitute and add products or food into that, protein into that, to make it a larger meal to feed a larger amount of people. So what do you do? You go down to the creeks and you catch shrimp, or you might catch some crab, or you might catch some fish. So you get the fish in the grits or the shrimp in the grits. Or you might uh, get that one big pot and... You know, somebody went out and got some crab and some mullet on the plantation. You might have been growing some potatoes, some vegetables on the side. Well, you chop those potatoes up, you throw them in that pot, you put some of that, that shrimp, those crabs, those oysters in that pot, you boil it, now you've got your low country boil. Gullah Geechee communities can be found along the coast of Florida, particularly in Nassau, Duval, and St. John's counties. Jacksonville is home to the historic Gullah Geechee neighborhoods of La Villa and Brooklyn. Cosmo, located near Jacksonville on the St. Johns River, was established as a Gullah Geechee Freedman community after the end of the Civil War. Jacksonville was the first city in the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor Commission to expand into a major U.S. city. So today, Jacksonville has the largest concentration of Gullah Geechee descendants in the U.S. And there's about 5 million Gullah Geechee descendants. And Jackson was probably holding about two or three hundred thousand of them. Today, the Gullah Geechee people continue to preserve their distinct arts, language, music, and food ways throughout the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor and beyond. To learn more about Gullah Geechee culture and history, go to GullahGeecheeCorridor.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.